Well, throughout these weeks, we have been looking at the choice for faithfulness in terms of a, a kind of unifying theme for what it means to live the life of faith following Jesus. And we've been looking at the different hues of faithfulness as we've been exploring David's words to us in Psalms 9 through 17. His choice for faithfulness in, in times that, that really challenge that decision. And today we're at Psalm 17. We'll finish the series next week with Psalm 18. That's kind of a coda on the end of these psalms. And talking about choosing relationship. And really when you talk about choosing relationship, you're talking about a choice that is, uh, and a word that is the synonym of faithfulness. It's a big word. Relationship and faithfulness are both very big words. They're big words in the same way that righteousness is a big word. And righteousness literally means living in right relationship with God and with others. Keeping the covenant to seek the other's best and to trust the other to seek yours as well. And it's all about that process of holding on to faithfulness, to righteousness, to relationship, holding on to valuing that primarily and preeminently, even in the face of times where the times might suggest to us that it's better to go our own way. And so we want to look at Psalm 17 now, David's prayer for deliverance. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From you let my vindication come. Let your eyes see the right. If you try my heart, if you visit me by night, if you test me, you will find no wickedness in me. My mouth does not transgress. As for what others do, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Guard me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. For they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They track me down. Now they surround me. They set their eyes to cast me to the ground. They are like a lion eager to tear, like a young lion lurking in ambush. Rise up, O Lord. Confront them. Overthrow them. By your sword, deliver my life from the wicked, from mortals by your hand, O Lord, from mortals whose portion in life is in this world. May their bellies be filled with what you have stored for them. May their children have more than enough. May they leave something over to their little ones. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake I shall be satisfied beholding your likeness. Let's pray. 
Lord, turn our attention to your presence and tune our hearts to sing your praise. We desire at this time and really at all times to be able to behold your face and to receive the light of your countenance that transforms us and calls us to new life. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've shared with you before that I'm the third of three children in my family. I have two older sisters uh, who never ceased to remind me that I was the one with privilege uh, in our family. And one of those privileges, quite frankly, that I've experienced in, in adulthood, and especially in, in young adulthood, is that my sisters were married and had children before I even met Mary Ann. They were married a number of years and had their families uh, well underway and by the time I was in my mid-20s, and I would go to visit with them. And one time I remember being at my sister Nancy's house. She's the oldest of the the three of us. And it was the privilege of being able to watch and learn and to learn something that I would value and and incorporate into my own life once I became a parent. One time while I was visiting with them, we were headed out the door to church one Sunday morning. And this was before I was ordained. I was uh, still in seminary. And my sister Nancy, with some irritation, sort of turned around, suddenly stepped back into the house and came out with a a small pocket-sized Bible like you see the Gideons giving away on on street corners. And she handed it to her two-year-old son, my nephew Adam, who just brightened up as soon as the Bible went into his hands. And my sister then looked at me and sort of rolled her eyes and said, yeah, they want the two-year-olds to bring their Bibles. Of course, he won't read for three or four more years. <laughs> but they want the two-year-olds to bring their Bibles. And if they bring their Bibles, they get a sticker or a treat or something like that. And so on the times that I've forgotten to put the Bible in his hands, he's been traumatized by the absence of, of a reward for bringing his Bible. I loved her cynicism. It, it just resonated with all that I am uh, and, uh, uh, and probably all that our family was in some ways. Uh, but she just pointed to a truth that has stayed with me, this truth that her son was getting early training in wearing the outward badge of devotion before he even knew himself to be devoted. That's called religion. It's the age-old problem of people of faith in that we are trained up in the faith often by choices for religion rather than being invited into a relationship. People in every age and of every faith have struggled with this choice. I guarantee you, you will find in every age and every faith those who love to let everyone know how righteous they are. And religion in this context is a knowable and practicable system of rules that stresses our devotion to God or that 
strives to be devoted to God, a way of organizing ourselves, a way of defining our, our behaviors, if you will. But those things are only good insofar as it leads us into practices that nurture relationships. We used to talk about this in the Presbyterian church as means of grace, that that different kinds of disciplines and and duties and rules were actually means of grace. Of course, it didn't take long for means of grace to become works of the law, (laughs) but it got the, the sense of it correct, that these things are designed to do something bigger than to just get us to obey the rules. They're a way of bringing ourselves to attention to a bigger truth that's behind the religious practice. And doing the religious practice is not worth very much if it doesn't lead to these bigger things which are really about developing relationship with the living God. Religion keeps things in a very definable space, quite frankly. It keeps God in a box. makes our lives very knowable because if we're doing the right things, if we're following the right rules, then God will be happy and we won't have to worry about making God unhappy. We won't have the wildness of relationship. We will just have the transactions of following the rules and receiving a blessing. It keeps God in that little box. But relationship, as we all know, is wild. Relationship requires risk. But here's the thing. Relationship also fosters joy. And Psalm 17 is about choosing relationship. Especially at a time, as in all of those other psalms that we've looked at over these weeks, especially in a time when the evidence of that relationship is sort of in short supply. Psalm 17 is a prayer of faithfulness. It's a prayer of trust that God knows and that God hears and that that God values us. The psalm starts with basically a, a very impassioned appeal. If I was to give you the paraphrase of those first six verses of this psalm, it would be, I need you to listen to me, God. And I'm not sure you are. I need you to listen to me because I've got something to say. I've got a grievance to address. I've got a just cause to take up with you. There's something going on that I know would bug you if you were aware of it. I've got standing to file this claim, is what he's saying. I've got standing to file this complaint because there's no wickedness in me. My mouth doesn't transgress. I've avoided the ways of those who do transgress. I'm living a pretty clean life. I've avoided the ways of those who do transgress, and I'm walking in a path that you have ordained for humanity to walk. So I call on you now. Listen to me. Answer me. I need some sense also, as we continue in verses 7 through 14, I need some sense also that you have heard. So show your love. 
Show your love to those of us who are seeking refuge in you. Guard us as the apple of your eye. Hide us under the shadow of your wings. I need some sense that you have heard because I need to feel adored and I need to feel protected. I need to know that this relationship is the ultimate context in which I live all of my life. And I want out from under the burden of my enemies. So rise up, O God. Confront them, O God. Deliver me, O God. Deliver me from mortals whose portion is life in this world and who want only what this world has to offer. And then the psalmist says something very interesting. Verse 14, and I just want to read it again for you. I'll read verses 13 and 14. Rise up, O Lord, confront them, overthrow them. By your sword, deliver my life from the wicked, from mortals. By your hand, O God, from mortals whose portion in life is in this world. And by the way, may their bellies be filled with what you have stored up for them. May their children have more than enough. May they leave something over to their little ones. In other words, give them exactly what they're seeking. If they want more wealth, give it to them. There's no request here for a reversal of fortune. There's no request here that we sometimes see in the Psalms and that we often attribute to the Psalms that I want what they have. So take it from them and give it to me. There's none of that here. It's let them have what they're going after. I want something else. I want to be the apple of your eye. I want to hide in the shelter and the shadow of your wings. So let them have that. But for me, the last verse says it all. As for me, says the psalmist, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied beholding your likeness. What is important to me, says the psalmist, is relationship with you. I want to behold your face. And as I end this day, as I go to sleep, I do so in anticipation of the satisfaction that was there today, whether I knew it or not, that will be there tomorrow, whether I experience it or not. I want to know that in your presence, I will have all that I need. There's a Benedictine monk who's had a profound influence on my life. His name is Father Gregory Elmer. He died not too long ago. He was a member of a Benedictine community in the, the high desert in, in Southern California. And his teaching was, was important to me. And, and he said this thing once that I've never forgotten. He said, you know, when we get to heaven, God will ask us the question, that God has been asking us since the foundation of time. And that question is simply this. What do you want? What do you want? And that's the question that God asks us because God creates us 
with the ability to go after what we want and offers himself as one of the alternatives. In fact, he created us in his likeness in a way that gives us a desire to want that relationship. But Father Gregory's line was, you can have what you go after. And the psalmist says here that he wants more than what his enemies want. He wants more than the fruits of material abundance. And likewise, that takes us back to the earlier point of the sermon. That as Matthew quotes Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we can go after the payoff of religion or we can go after relationship with God. You know, you look at all of those things in Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 through um, 21. You know, beware of practicing your piety before others. And whenever you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. And whenever you fast, don't look dismal. Stop trying to prove your piety. Stop trying to prove your devotion to God. Stop trying to prove the sacrifice that you've made. Who cares the way, about the way you look to the people of the church? But go and be with your father in secret. Go Pray to your father in secret. Go give alms in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he, he closes off this section with these lines. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. I love that last line because it's a reversal of what we expect. It's an absolute reversal of what we expect. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. No. What you do is what shows where your treasure is. <laughs> where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They have their reward, says Jesus. And you can have God in your box and have that reward if you want it. But there's a greater reward to have. And it's the reward of a risky but joy-producing relationship. Another mentor of mine, James Loder, used to say, relationality is reality. In other words, it's the basic building block of all that matters to our human existence, relationship. Because what is real and substantial and lasting, eternal, if you will, is relationship. To behold the face of God, to receive God's loving gaze, to know ourselves as the apple of God's eye, this is the living water that Jesus speaks of. This is the living water that sustains us. This is the life that makes us whole. It's the assurance that even when we don't know where we're necessarily going, we know that we're going there with God. Let's pray.
Lord God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Remind us of that truth of what you implanted in us at creation, and help us to own that part of our identity and so seek your face, to receive your loving gaze and to understand the empowering truth of what it means to be adored by you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.